Good morning, Elevation. Uh, I'm excited to introduce our speaker for this morning. We're going to be hearing again from Mark Detweiler, and Mark is going to be preaching from the lectionary passage, the gospel passage this week uh, from Luke uh, chapter 15, 11 through 31, and I'm going to read that for us. The parable of the lost son. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want, to sh I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the, the pigs. The man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His, the, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on his feet. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. While he, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Good morning. Today is the first Sunday of the spring season and the fourth Sunday of Lent. We are continuing in our series of sermons from the lectionary readings my sermon today will focus on the parable of the lost son, which is found in Luke 15, 11 through 31. When my daughter, Rachel, was in the first grade, her teacher decided to assess her arithmetic skills. The teacher said, Rachel, if you had one dollar and you ask your father to give you another dollar, how many dollars do you have? And Rachel said, I have one dollar. The teacher said, no, Rachel, you would have $2. It seems you don't know your arithmetic very well. And Rachel replied, 
no, it seems you don't know my father very well. Now, I've started the sermon today with this somewhat lame, hopefully slightly humorous, and completely made up story about my daughter for two reasons. First, I know that my family members really hate it when I talk about them in sermon illustrations. Now, a better man than me would honor his daughter's wishes in this regard, but Rachel doesn't have a better man for a father. She has me. And the second and more important reason, I thought that the punchline of that little story would make a fitting title and theme for today's sermon. And that is, you don't know my father very well. The lectionary gospel reading for today, the fourth Sunday of Lent, is the parable of the lost son, or often called the prodigal son, taken from Luke's gospel chapter 15. This is a very familiar parable. I would say that this story, along with the Good Samaritan, are probably the most widely known of Jesus' parables, having made their way even to everyday language and popular culture. To set this parable in context, at the beginning of Luke 15, the scripture records that the religious leaders are grumbling that Jesus is hanging around with sinners and people of poor reputation. In the minds of the religious leaders, a teacher or a prophet of God would never hang around with people of this sort. Jesus proceeds to tell his audience three parables about things that are lost and the celebrations that ensue when they are recovered. Luke 15 records the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. To note that things and people do not lose their value when they are lost, and it's God's desire to recover and restore the full value of that which has been lost and to celebrate that recovery. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey notes, Jesus did not give the parables to teach us how to live. He gave them, I believe, to correct our notions about who God is and who God loves. So when Jesus encountered those who were grumbling about him spending time with sinners, because apparently God wouldn't like that very much, he taught these parables as his way of saying, it seems that you don't know my father very well. Now it's pretty clear from the context of this parable that the father in the story represents God and the two sons represent people just like you and me. One of the notions that Jesus is trying to correct is that God rewards people who behave well and punishes those who behave badly. Now, the main reason we think this way, that God acts this way, is because this is the way that we behave and act. Our society is merit-based, and we have become hardwired to expect that reward will be connected to performance against the standard. It starts in kindergarten. We get a gold star from the teacher because we can spell our name and we know our colors. When we get home, we get a smile, a hug, and maybe even ice cream from our parents. We think this is good. I would like more of this. 
And so it continues. Through grade school, we are evaluated against the standard and hopefully getting good grades. Later, we have to compete to get into the workforce or into the college or university of our choice. We have to interview and demonstrate our competence to get the job we want. If we do well in that job, we get promoted. And if we continue to excel, we get the bonus. Now, as an aside, it may be a coincidence, but this very week at my place of work, it was performance review time. And I have to do an in-depth review with everyone who reports to me. Oh, what a joyous time it is for me. I, I love doing this so much. He says with no sarcasm at all. Now I'm supposed to rate each person's performance on a scale of one to five, with one being something like, you're so incompetent, I'm surprised you found your way to your desk. And five being, you're so amazing, I'm surprised they haven't made you the president. Now, if an employee ranks a five, they get a bit of a performance bonus pay. So it seemed to me as I was preparing this sermon, that perhaps the godly thing for me to do would be to give everyone a five, no matter what they have done. But then of course, I saw that the human resources department has limited the, the allowable number of top rankings to a maximum of 10% of the staff. Imagine. So one could say that engineers like me are trying our best to do the Lord's work. But once again, we are being foiled by human resources policy. Now, as a further aside, I sincerely apologize to anyone who works in the human resources field for making this cheap joke at your expense. Later, you can commiserate with my daughter, Rachel, on what it feels like to be the subject of a joke in a sermon and what a jerk I am. Believe me, she will not argue the point. Okay, now where was I? Right, performance-based performance society. Back to that. Our performance-based notions of how things should work in this world have made their way into the churches. When we open the Bible, we see commandments, standards, and laws, and we set up a performance system. Follow the rules. But if you break the rules, tell God your story and it'll be okay. It's apparent that we believe that God acts like us, evaluating performance against his standard, rewarding good performance, punishing bad performance. Manage your sin well and everything will work out fine. So exactly how prevalent is this view? A survey in the United States found that more than 60% of people said that you would go to heaven if you lived a good life. You would not go to heaven if you did evil things. Now in marketing terms, that's pretty good market penetration with that message. Approximately two thirds of people believe this. But this is a seriously distorted message and the parable of the lost son stands this notion on its head. So there are three key things that I see in this parable that I want to expand on this morning. The first thing is 
that where we are is more important to God than what we have done. Where we are is more important than what we've done. The younger son believes that his actions will disqualify him from his father's favor. In verse 18, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your, called your son. By contrast, the older son believes that his actions should earn his father's favor. He says, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat. That's in verse 29. One son says he's unworthy because of what he's done. And the other son says that he's not only worthy, but he's entitled to his father's favor because of what he's done. Note that both sons reference their own actions and behavior. Both hold the mistaken belief that the relationship with their father hinges on their own merit. This is the very familiar performance-based view that permeates our world. But now let's look at the words of the father as recorded in this parable. Interestingly, he never mentions the actions of either one of his sons at all. In reference to the younger son, he says, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Verse 24. In reference to the older son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. So while the sons focus on what they have done, their actions seem almost irrelevant to the father in this parable. Now, I want to quickly note that I think it would be an error to say that our actions don't matter at all. There are other scriptures that would say that our actions as followers of Jesus matter very much. But I do think that I'm on solid ground in saying that our actions are not of first order importance to God. In this parable, the thing that is of first order importance to the father is where his children are in relation to him. The father wants his children close, interacting with him, in the same room, enjoying the party together with him. He doesn't want us in the next room or lost in a far off country. The father's heart values the relationship above all. So I think an important question to ask myself this morning is, where am I? Am I near the Father? Am I moving closer or wandering away? Am I lost in a far-off country? Am I dead, needing to be made alive again? Wherever we are, wherever you are, please hear that the Father's strong desire is to have you close. In Christ, he has made the way that we can be restored to a full relationship with him. What you may or may not have done will not get in the way of that relationship. The second point 
that I want to bring out this morning is that the love of God is inclusive and available to all. In telling the story of the lost son, Jesus was quite explicit in describing the lost son's list of offenses that the religious leaders would find particularly egregious. We have wild living, we have prostitutes, we have cavorting with foreigners, and finally, we have pigs, all of which would have been a pretty big deal to an upstanding Jewish man like the father in this story. Surely, this type of behavior is over the line and unacceptable. But the father wanted to restore the relationship first and foremost. This is what matters. Please take a look at verse 20 to 24. We see that the father's heart is filled with compassion and he embraces his son when he was still a long way off. Before his son says a single word, he's in his father's embrace. The restoration of the relationship began prior to the confession. So what is needed from me to receive grace and forgiveness from the Father? Do I need to pray in a certain way, act in a certain way, do certain things? Certainly the religious leader of Jesus' day had a whole list of conditions, and you don't need to look very far today to find the modern versions of legalism everywhere. For some reason, we as people really like to put boundaries on the grace of God and define who is in and who is out of the club. But when I look in scripture at the ministry of Jesus, I see that consistently, whenever someone was excluded or marginalized, he always took steps to include them in the Father's love. Jesus always enlarged the tent of God's grace and required no prerequisite. In the scripture, we see the story of a leper simply shouting out, have mercy on me, and grace flowed from Jesus. A woman who was reportedly caught in the act of adultery just sat silently before Jesus, and Jesus said, I do not condemn you. And once again, grace flowed. And finally, the thief who was crucified next to Jesus only said the words, remember me. And Jesus promised that he would join him that day in paradise. The common point of these stories is that there was no form of confession or retribution or restoration on the part of each individual. The only thing was that each individual had a need, and in some cases, a desperate need. They simply opened their hands to receive, and grace flowed. Philip Yancey writes, a relationship with God is offered freely, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. In the stories of extravagant grace given to us by Jesus, there are no loopholes that disqualify us from God's love. 
In order to receive grace, we need only to open our hands. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest point. And finally, as we conclude today, I want to note one final and very important point on the value of emptiness. From childhood up, I've been taught that it's our sin that separates us from God, and we need to do something about that in order to reconnect with God. And so the Christian faith is presented as a solution for dealing with sin. It's what Dallas Willard has called the gospel of sin management. We become very self-reliant in managing our apparent sin problem. So let's consider the lost stories, the lost son's story once again. His sin did not separate him from his father. It is clear the sin did not count his, it's clear the father did not count his sin against him. Grace was offered freely. What separated the son from the father and the thing that stood in the way of their relationship was not sin, it was distance. It was the son that chose to leave the father's side because he had other options and he chose those options over remaining in a relationship with his father. And he returned to his father because he was desperate, empty, out of options. It seems that the only precursor to grace is a sense that we actually need it. And this is the value of emptiness. I believe that one of the primary problems in our merit-based and affluent world is that we have a lot of options that we can choose over a relationship with God. We can live our lives and basically never run out of alternatives. We believe that as long as we are managing our sin appropriately according to the rules, then there's nothing standing in the way of a relationship with God because that's what we've been taught. But sin is not a problem for God because of what Christ has done. It's affluence and resources and options that led the son away, and it was emptiness that brought him back. We ourselves have affluence, resources, and options that distract us from being in a close relationship with the Father. In his book, Falling Upward, Father Richard War writes this. Sooner or later, some event, person, death, idea, or relationship will enter your life that you simply cannot deal with using your present skill set, your acquired knowledge, or your strong willpower. Spiritually speaking, you will be, you must be led to the edge of your own private resources. At that point, you will and you must lose at something. This is the only way God can get you to change. Let go of your egocentric preoccupations and go on to the further and larger journey. There is no practical or compelling reason to leave one's present comfort zone in life. Why should you or why would you? Frankly, none of us do this until we have to.
Jesus loves to tell stories like the one about the publican and the Pharisee and the famous one about the prodigal son in which the character in which one character does his life totally right and is in fact wrong and the one who does it totally wrong ends up God's beloved. By denying pain and avoiding the necessary falling, many have kept themselves from their own spiritual depths and therefore have been kept from their own spiritual heights. Friends, I think that the season of Lent is a time when we are called to ponder and even embrace our own emptiness. The origin of Lent is Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he fasted for 40 days. Think about that. The Spirit led Jesus to a place of emptiness before being tested by the devil. Perhaps you think that Jesus was in a weakened state at the end of those 40 days. But do you think that the Spirit would lead Jesus to a place that weakens him or a place that strengthens him spiritually? I believe that although he was physically weak, Jesus was spiritually strong in the moment of temptation, partially because the emptiness of the place around him made him fully reliant on God. There was simply nothing else around. None of us likes emptiness, but emptiness brings us to open our hands so we can receive the grace that is being offered. In this season of Lent, I would invite each of us to ponder where we are in relation to God. Be assured that the Almighty God wants renewed and a renewed and vital relationship with you, wherever you are. When I wander away, I need only turn my face toward home. God sees me a long way off and meets me where I am. When I find myself in the wilderness place, I can be assured that God will fill the emptiness as I wait with open hands. And when I'm a place where there are many, where there are too many distractions that pull me away, God calls to me to clear those distractions that can displace my relationship with him. Grace is available to all without condition. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you that you are the God of infinite grace. And we acknowledge that we are people in desperate need of that grace. By your spirit, call each of us to turn toward home, to clear the distractions away and to open our hands to receive what we desperately need, a renewed relationship with you, the almighty God, and our loving parent. We thank you for this message from your word. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.